Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter uh, 19 is where we're at. We've been going through the book of Acts here. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll tell you a little story. Many decades ago, a long time ago, a shoe company sent two uh, shoe salesmen over to Africa trying to expand their market. And uh, both were sent to remote villages where the standard of living had recently begun to improve. The first salesman sent a telegram back to the corporate headquarters and reported, no one here wears shoes, I can't make any sales, so I'm coming home ASAP, as soon as possible. The other salesman also sent a telegram and said, no one here wears shoes, I'm making lots of sales, send more shoes ASAP, as soon as possible. So you had the same circumstances, but two different reactions. And when you read through the book of Acts, you get the feeling the Apostle Paul many times felt like that second salesman where he traveled, when he traveled to new cities with the gospel. All around him were lost people who needed Jesus. And in their lostness, they had many beliefs and idolatrous practices that were based on their lostness. Just as he had once had many religious practices based on a different kind of lostness, but like the idol worshipers, he was just as lost even though he had a religious background. Paul recognized that he had what they needed, even if they didn't know it yet. So there's your first fill in the blank, the word yet. And he knew that the same gospel that had saved him out of his religion-based lostness could save them out of their idolatry-based lostness. And, you know, as I think about the days we're in, and you think about the decline in every generation with the percentages of young folk versus older folk that have some kind of connection to a church and uh, who are outright calling themselves none and rejecting the gospel, there's two ways to look at that. One way is to say, huh, you know, this youngest generation doesn't want the gospel that has meant so much to us. The other way to look at it is, well, if there's that many lost kids around, this is a great opportunity to be like missionaries, figure out how they're thinking and go to them and learn enough about them to bridge in and share the gospel that really will be uh, what they need and don't know it. Uh, just like happened to me when I was 17 years old, you know, lost as a white goose in a snowstorm, you know, and Doug Barr uh, was just different. And he invested in me, invited me to church, and I heard the gospel and was saved. And, uh, you know, the rest is uh, history. So just as he had done in every place, Paul had courageously shared the gospel in Ephesus, and lots of people had become believers out of their lost backgrounds. That was what we saw in the first verses in chapter 19 there. And as they did, we read last time, they got rid of a very expensive amount worth of pagan books and their idols. And as we're going to see tonight, as they were rejoicing that those things weren't going to be part of their lives anymore, others were angry when they saw those idols burning and those books being burned and those type things. Uh, and it didn't set well with those who made their living by selling those pagan books and selling those idols. So as they looked at their drop in sales, they saw the possibility of losing their business altogether if they didn't deal with those new beliefs that Paul uh, brought. 
And as we study this, it's going to give us the opportunity to talk about what to do when we encounter our own disturbances because of the way of Christ. So on Sunday mornings, I've switched over and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but on Wednesday nights, I'm still reading from the New King James. And here it is in verses 21 to 41. When these things were accomplished, that's after the book burning, the magic book burning, Paul purported in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only in this trade of ours is not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana or Artemis may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried at one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew... Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, and there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." So we're going to look through this section about disturbances about the way. And in the first couple verses, we get Paul's travel plans, what he was intending to do. And that's kind of neat to get this material as you study through the book of Acts. It says he sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. Now, Timothy, of course, is well known to Bible readers because of the two books that Paul wrote to him. But with the inclusion of Erastus' name, we're reminded that Paul probably mentored dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, young men. And as important as it is speaking to crowds, another important work is done in small groups and in time spent with a few modeling and mentoring. You know, um, uh, one of the great privileges I had uh, as a college student was to be mentored by Dr. Bill Brown. He's actually c- going to come and speak to us uh, the first Sunday in March. And Dr. Bill Brown spent 
10 years or so as the, 20 years or so as the president of Bryan College, then 10 more as the president of Cedarville University. Now he works with the Colson Center. And he takes young professionals, whether they're doctors or lawyers or businessmen and women or whoever else, and they do some online stuff. They do some programming and things like that. Uh, you know, I think they do some cohorts where they go, uh, come together. And um, they basically go through about a year's worth of world, biblical worldview stuff. Some of the things that others go to seminary to get, but as a professional, you don't necessarily get the chance to do that. And they have these wonderful cohorts where they do that together. It's pretty neat. But I had a chance to learn biblical worldview and neat Bible principles and things from him when I was a student at Bryan College. Well, he had learned a lot of that because he had been in a small group once upon a time with Howard Hendricks, the great Dallas Seminary professor. And Howard Hendricks pulled some of the students there together at Dallas Seminary, and he'd meet with them in small groups, and he did it literally for thousands of people over the years, and they went out and did it for hundreds and thousands when you add the numbers together, and that's still rippling out there. And when I had a chance to take a class later on uh, during my doctor of ministry program with <laughs> Howard Hendricks, he said, listen, fellas, it's neat to be able to preach, and preaching's good and do it, but always gather a few men around you and spend more time with them and do things with them and, and learn together. And, uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll really accentuate your ministry. And it's neat to see that, where did Howard Hendricks get it from? All the way back to Jesus modeling it with disciples, Paul having these companions around. And uh, Timothy and Erasta must have hit it off on this short-term mission trip because later when Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.20, he gives him news of Erastus, and Timothy wanted to know about that, how he was doing. So Paul stayed in Ephesus a while, but he planned to revisit the churches planted before returning to uh, Jerusalem, and then he was going to go on to Rome. And part of that time, he was going to take a, a relief offering and when you read all the things in Paul's letters about that relief offering, it looks like it was partly for um, uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem area, Judea, during a famine, but also just for some of, some of the Jewish brethren there, too, uh, kind of like the Institute does as it helps uh, Jews and uh, people around the world. So Paul wanted to go to Rome. He, he said after that, I want, he wants to go on to Rome and then from there on to Spain. And so he wanted to keep encouraging believers that he had met and he hadn't met and then going on beyond that to Spain. So his travel plans are given there. And in Romans 15, he talks about some of that desire more, especially going on to Spain because they didn't really have any churches there yet. So in verses 23 to 29, we see that the gospel is bad for businesses built on idolatry and sin. So what does verse 23 do? It speaks of the Christian faith as the way. It says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. So six times in Acts, um, Christianity and adopting the faith is called the way. Uh, why would we call it the way? Why did they call, talk about the way there in the book of Acts? Can you think about why? John 14, 6, right. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so it's not just that the way are principles that you follow. You're following Jesus, the way. And so they uh, shorthand for the faith back then was the way. Tell people you're on the way next time you see them. So what way? The Jesus way. Verse 24 tells us about a silversmith named Demetrius, and maybe he was head of the silversmith guild there in Ephesus. So he and his co-workers made shrines and household idols of Artemis, 
And Artemis is Greek and means the great mother. Her name in Latin is Diana. And so you can put it there. Wonder Woman's called Diana. They're trying to refer back to some of these things. And um, in Greek mythology, Artemis was the virgin huntress goddess, but in the Asian version, she was the fertility goddess, the quote-unquote mother of all of Asia. And so, uh, has anybody ever seen a statue of Diana? When you see a statue of Diana, what you see is a statue of, um, a, uh, like all the other uh, marble statues you see, but then uh, they put about a hundred breasts down on our midsection and stuff like that to represent this fertility. Uh, so there were 33 temples to Artemis around the Roman Empire, but only this one was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this was the big one there in Ephesus, and they were proud of the fact that they were the home of this temple. It was as big as one and a half football field, so imagine a building that long. A football field's pretty big. We got a, a football coach over here. Um, a um, football field's pretty big. This is a football field and a half. And they had 127 columns that were each 60 feet high. And that's pretty high. Um, each the gift of a king. It not only had 100 priestesses who doubled as prostitutes to aid the worshipers, or perhaps give the worshipers aids, you know, whatever. But it was also a treasury where a large part of the wealth of the Western a Asia was stored. So they just put it all together in these idolatrous temples. So it was a place you could go to worship this fertility cult. You could have sex with a prostitute. She was called a priestess. And, uh, but, but it was also one of the uh, big banks in all of Asia. So one scholar called it the principal financial institution of Asia, and it went back 800 years before the time of Christ. So people would come from all over the world to worship Diana, come to this place, uh, you know, and also do banking because so much money was there too. And being the home of that worship was a source of pride uh, and profit for the Ephesians. So you think of Las Vegas, you think of Monte Carlo, you think of Amsterdam with its red light district, all those things. It was a version of all those things. And here comes Paul preaching uh, that it's not just enough to have idols and all kinds of gods. You need to follow the one true God. The way to know Him is through Jesus, who is the way. Uh, and he preaches, uh, you know, in preaching positively about Christ. Uh, and it looks like Paul pretty much, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, would talk about the need we have as sinners, then preach Christ as, um, you know, the one who died for our sins according to the Scripture, was uh, buried, rose on the third day to conquer Satan, sin, death, and hell, and that this gospel offer was going about. So what you could not fill your heart with through idols, Paul was preaching you could find in a real relationship with the living Christ. It reminds me of our friend Mark Hefner, uh, who's uh, many of you have got to meet now. And um, currently he's in Texas uh, getting his son through high school, but he is a missionary in Taiwan, and him and Laura will go back there one day also caring for her parents down there. Um, but uh, one time he was talking to a neighbor lady there in Taiwan and she was burning incense to an idol. Uh, and he, she looked so sad that he couldn't help it. He went over and talked to her and he said, how's that working for you? She said, it's not working. And he said, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish? She said, I'm so sad. And she, he said, well, let's talk about it, you know. And she talked to him for a little while. And before that was done, she had actually turned to Jesus Christ away from empty, false religion to a real relationship with the living God that can give peace and joy. So 
These idols are really no competition for a living faith. And so Paul was preaching against idolatry and superstition. He didn't spend a lot of time worrying about what they did because he was presenting Christ and how glorious he is. People were coming to Christ and then they were turning from their idolatry and their superstition. And the new Christians and the people they influenced stopped going to the big Diana gift shop. They stopped uh, uh, ordering from ArtemisGifts.com, you know, and all those different things. And so we just know when the gospel makes its impact, those who make their living by helping people sin often become the church's biggest opponents. And we should say external opponents there because, uh, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to overcome it. So... Um, we mostly are thinking about the noise made by those who reject the gospel, the kind of earthly persecutions they can give. The Christian's biggest problem is not with anybody outside of themselves. It's with the person in the mirror. As individuals, our greatest battle will always be in uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, uh, you know, as we seek God's face, He will help us. And as we make progress in the faith, I'm rereading Pilgrim's Progress again, as I do at the beginning of every year. Uh, we will uh, face uh, the valley of humiliation. We'll face the slough of despond. We'll face the uh, doubting castle and the giant named despair and all those things. Seems like all those things come into play every year. I have a few things uh, right now uh, that Elizabeth and I are just devastatingly discouraged about, you know. Um, but I have God's joy and peace and help as we get through the early days of this coming year. And um, just, uh, you know, as Langston Hughes said, life hadn't been a crystal stair. You know, there are things that really break our hearts and stuff, you know, and, and we carry on. We go forward with the Lord and His retirement plan is out of this world. But once again, we see the truth of Acts 17.6 lived out. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So when the gospel is accepted, there is often an economic impact. And uh, that has been seen historically. And as we pray for revival and awakening now, uh, I remember being at Mr. Motley's uh, funeral uh, Saturday, and one of the precious young members we have is Laura Motley and uh, John Motley's wife. Her dad's a preacher. He's a preacher of a different denomination. And at the end of that time, I got acquainted with him, and we talked for maybe 15 minutes or so. And, you know, uh, what, what do two preachers from different denominations talk about when they get together? We were just talking about the need we have for revival and awakening uh, in, the, in the area, in the state, in the land. And, the, you know, all this mess up in D.C. kind of partly shows all that's going on and stuff. But when there's revival in an area... Uh, Alcohol and drug sales go down. Hypersexual practices are turned away from. People stop wasting money through gambling. R-rated movies sell less than GMPG movies. All those things, right? And uh, now, later on, these silversmiths will get smart. They'll figure out if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> and they'll start fashioning crosses for the Christians, you know, and stuff. So there's still, uh, you know, a way to make money uh, for them out there. And I'm kind of being tongue in cheek there, but they'll figure out they can make those things. And the Christians will buy them like others bought the Artemis idols. But at this point, they figure out they're losing money because of what Paul's doing. And a certain amount of pride in Diana worship also kicked in. So in verses 29 to 34, we see, don't be surprised when persons persecution occurs. It says, The whole city was filled with confusion, rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Hey, 
Gaius, uh, Aristarchus, you want to go on a mission trip with me? Sure, Paul, man, we hear about all these great things you do. We'll go on that trip with you. We'll take a few months, maybe a half a year and go and do that with you. And then we can go back to where we live. It'll be great. Uh, we're going to bring our um, you know, phone. We're going to have all kinds of great times. We're going to take uh, uh, selfies and put things on Facebook about how great it is to serve the Lord and all those different things. And these poor guys had no idea what they were getting themselves in for because uh, when given the chance, the uh, Ephesians grabbed them because they're the closest Christians they could get a hold on. They're mad at Paul. They can grab these guys and do, and they yank them into the middle of a big storm, you know. Uh, but don't be surprised when things like that happen. Most places Paul had gone, he experienced some type of persecution. Later, he wrote to Timothy, the words of 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, here's one thing. I've been quoting 2 Timothy 3.12 uh, almost all the way back to when I first became a Christian. So I'm 55 years old now. I was 17 then. And I became a Christian and some people that I had mocked started mocking me, you know, uh, experienced some harassment, some mockery, you know. Uh, there's been a time or two as a pastor I've been threatened physically and stuff like that over the years. But here's what I've noticed. As I've shared that verse from uh, Timothy 3.12, 2 Timothy 3.12, over the years, the extent to which I've seen Americans, the, the persecution index kind of ramping up, to where now bodily harm is increasingly happening and even possible death for the faith here in America is happening. It's just going up from 20, 30 years ago. I remember the first time uh, when I was uh, a student at Bryan, I started going to an independent Baptist church. So my background is a little bit of Bible church, saving a Southern Baptist church, then a little bit of Bible church background because Brian was non-denominational. Then I went to this independent Baptist church before I was done. And kind of you put those things together, that's kind of what I am, you know. But uh, there would be this guy that would come through, and it was just like having the Apostle Paul come through. Brother Russ was his name. And Bill Smithson... And the church there informally would give Russ a, a place to stay for a day or two. And then they'd uh, feed him and send him back out. They'd give him some money and stuff like that. And this fella just went up and down, mostly the East Coast, and would mostly go into the cities where the gangs were, just like the story of David Wilkerson, the cross and the switchblade. And it was not uncommon to see Brother Russ come back into town and have deep bruising on his face and an arm in a sling or something like that. Many times as he was a street preacher, he would get the tar beat out of him, you know. And um, so, I, I, you know, and you might have heard some stories of it, things like that happening in America, in America, too. But mostly we hear about those things from other places when we pray for people that the voice of the martyrs tells us about or that Open Doors tells us about. But let me guarantee you, if you love Jesus and that love overflows in trying to tell others about Jesus, you will experience some level of persecution. You can count on it. And it takes on different forms, and it is a spectrum from lesser things like mockery and harassment to greater things like beatings and even death. Uh, and, you know, all along those ways. But all persecution from, comes from the same place, rejection of Jesus. And so don't be surprised if you love Jesus and they don't, that they don't like you and they'll say it and, you know, you'll be overlooked for promotion or get in trouble for this or that or the other. And uh, I, you, you, 
if you are trying to be faithful and experiencing some kind of trouble for that, you really learn to live. Um, you understand Jesus's words about being wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, you know, coming up with the best strategy so that, uh, you know, you're putting your best witness forward uh, that you can. In John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. However, because you're not of this world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So back in Acts 19, 29, it says, The whole city was filled with confusion. They rushed together and grabbed these guys. They were grabbed by the mob. And the, this place was the largest, this amphitheater was the largest place in the city. It could hold about 25,000 people. Now, try to think about this with your five senses. Um, can you feel the, your personal space being violated as they get right up in your face there? Can you feel bodies touching each other and knocking each other off balance as they're jostling you as you're going up to where they're going to talk to you? Can you smell the mob in the days before deodorant? Whew. Can you hear them yelling in your ears based on uh, the fear of losing their livelihood? Can you see the anger in their faces? Can you, can you, can you, can you taste, <laughs> because they're up in your own face there, can you, can you taste their breath and the spittle coming out of their mouth as, as, as they're coming at you like that? Um, now, Paul was obviously concerned about these guys, and he wanted to go in to talk to the mob. If someone's going to get ripped apart, Paul said, I'm, I'm used to this. I'll go in and I'll get the beaten, and, you, and let Gaius and Aristarchus go. You know, I promised their parents I'd bring them back safe. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the disciples and Paul's government friends knew better. They know, man, if we put Paul in the middle of that thing now, they'll just rip him to death, you know. And so they kept him from that. And sometimes you've got to listen to the advice of your friends. The provincial officials that it refers to here were probably members of the aristocracy uh, who protected Rome's interests in the city, members of wealthy Roman families who stressed loyalty to the emperor, and they were trying to get this uh, mob thing cleared up. But back in the amphitheater, the mob was in confusion, and many of them didn't even know where they were. Look at verses 33 and 34. It says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this is kind of interesting. It looks like the Jews there who didn't like Paul put forward Alexander because they wanted to seize on this moment to, to really make trouble for him. It may be that he had previously hassled Paul and was looking to use this opportunity to again get Paul. If so, it backfired on him. And you may have seen in 2 Timothy 4, Paul later is talking about, and, and where was Timothy at when uh, Paul wrote to him uh, the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy? Where was Timothy at? Looks like Ephesus. So Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. So Paul's taking the time later on to tell Timothy, look, I've left you in Ephesus. And remember, uh, this guy can be trouble. That doesn't mean they weren't praying for his salvation. But, uh, you know, Paul didn't go out of his way to get a new beating or get somebody he knew to get a new beating if he could help it, you know, uh, even though he would gladly have prayed the sinner's prayer with old Alexander. Okay, so this last section, we learned that Christians appreciate the rule of law. 
So I like the fact that Luke put this in here because Luke knew that more than just Christians would read the book of Acts. Roman authorities would as well. And one thing, we're, we're getting to this point in uh, uh, Paul's ministry where he's determined to, after all the missionary trips, uh, go to Rome and get Rome to weigh in on uh, whether Christi whether you know Christians too have the right to speak out publicly. So even though he himself was willing to get beatings for the gospel, he's trying to also earn religious liberty for all those who will come after him. And not many people are going to be able to take it the way Paul did, you know, and that's true now too, you know. So it's very interesting that Luke put that in there because he was trying to basically say, you know, that Christians uh, appreciate the rule of law. So Luke wanted those authorities to know that Christians appreciated what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Today we call it the rule of law. So in this instance, there's no miraculous deliverances like other cities. There's just a wise city clerk who calmed his people down. And when we read here about a, a clerk, uh, you might think city manager like Danville has. Uh, some cities have mayors. Uh, we have both. We have a mayor that's elected from the council and really leads the council, but the city manager is the one that is doing all the behind-the-scenes things. Just like, a little bit like, we have a Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, and there's a pastor elected to be the president each year, but it's kind of a rah-rah position. The uh, Brian Autry, the CEO of the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, he's doing all the work behind the scenes. So when you're praying for people in Danville, the one really uh, pushing for all these progressive things like the casino, et cetera, is our city manager and the uh, mayor and the city council come and go. So when we're told in the scriptures to pray for those in authority to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, we pray for them by name to come to know Jesus if they don't, and also to come to the knowledge of the truth in every area that they seem deficient in understanding of that, uh, whether it's the president um, and his just radically pro-choice positions, anti-family positions, we pray for him to truly know Jesus. If he doesn't, we also pray for the Lord to keep him up in the night about such things and other politicians uh, down the line. So, so this is the city manager, and uh, he was the liaison between the council and the Roman authority. So this guy had a tough job because um, the uh, Rome was looking on for places that were kind of... They let themselves govern, but if things got out of hand, that was going to change. Rome was going to step in. They wanted to continue to be uh, rule, rule themselves, but to get to keep doing that, Rome didn't want to hear. Rome didn't want to get uh, stories of things happening like happened to January 6th, you know, <laughs> the Capitol a couple years back and stuff like that. They didn't want to see commotion. They didn't want to see commotion. So this, this thing had all, if, it's, if they're shouting for two hours in the city amphitheater, it had all the things, that, uh, what you put on Facebook and what you tweet about and stuff like that, that Rome would go, well, they can't handle things down there. So he realized, this clerk, that an illegal gathering that had not worked through the official channels was going on. If they didn't simmer down, this could cause real problems with the Roman authorities. So he makes three points to them in his little speech here in verses 35 to 41. The first one is questionable. He says, basically, Ephesus' reputation is secure. Nothing can keep, nothing could make Diana worship go down. You know, that's secure. 
few years back. Oh, Danville's a city of churches. We'd never allow anything like a heathen casino to come to town, you know. And uh, that was tested and proved not to be true, you know. Uh, we, we, it happened fast. And one of the problems was so many of us lived in the county, couldn't vote for things in the city and stuff, you know. But, um, you know, uh, so he says, reputation, sir, hey, 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 you know, no problem there. But uh, it did happen. The ruins of this wonder of the world uh, were discovered in the 19th century. So uh, it did go down. The second thing he says, the Christians were innocent of any direct crime. That, that was true. There was really nothing to charge with them with. There's no, you know, you can't just have a, a lynching. You can't have a, a trial uh, by uh, people, the mob, you know, mob, mob stuff like that. So uh, Rome would frown on that. And then, of course, he said you need to resort to the regular courts. If you got a problem, take it through the courts. And they were in violation of the Pax Romana. If they didn't stop, they could lose self-governing privileges. It worked, and of course, we thank God for good governing leadership that He stopped that moment, that no Christians died that day. And uh, so we're thankful um, when even secular rulers do the right thing and peace is restored. Um, so Romans 13, let's turn there. Because one of the things we do here and... Uh, as we go through life is interact. You know, we pay taxes, we interact with uh, secular authorities. Um, and uh, Paul gave these words in Romans 13 that really guide us. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. By the way, the word for minister is there, the same word we get deacon from. So uh, the ones that protect the public peace are God's deacon, God's servants. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. But because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And, of course, you can honor a position and pray for the person in that position, even when you can't honor the actual things they're doing. Um, so the default setting for Christians is to appreciate and honor the authority that's there. And, you know, elsewhere Paul talks about leading a peaceful and quiet life, uh, being known for being those who love others in the name of Jesus, who serve their community, who uh, show up and solve problems when they come. I think the NFL world has shown this the last couple of days. It shows how many Christians are with this uh, DeMar being hurt, you know, and still in critical condition. Uh, you know, it's really shown how many people are out there uh, that in the NFL that love the Lord and pray and you know, and um, uh, want to be part of uh, the solution. I'm, I'm sure it's just driving some people crazy right now. I, I, I don't know if you guys, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about it. Why are these people talking about praying all the time? It's driving me crazy. And yet it's right there. And of course, I already mentioned what it says in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so as Paul starts that section by saying, pray for those who are in authority, that's where I get that you want to pray for any of your leaders 
uh, in the community to be saved if they're not saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth in every area they're deficient in. You want to pray for that. So our challenge is to exist together with our neighbors in the public square with compassion without compromise. And I can tell you, as somebody who's been trying a long time now, you know, to engage uh, in, um, you know, a, a, in, in ways I can with uh, people to be good citizens as well as, you know, the tabernacle be a good church, uh, part of uh, community solutions and things like that. Uh, that really, you know, you can pray for me and pray for yourselves and all your own involvement. Uh, you know, in those things, you want to exist with compassion. You want to bring the love of Jesus in there and you want to serve and get those opportunities, but without compromise. And anybody that's tried to do that knows it, it, there's a lot of uh, things to, you know, face as you do that. And so, you know, I think about uh, Sister Ellen here, you know, um, we're going to pray for her to get that opening and opportunity and things. She's got to, on the one hand, submit to that uh, uh, the authority there, but she wants that opportunity. And we're going to pray for the doors to open there. And um, if it's, uh, you know, the same way that we had to patiently wait for the doors to open back at the Kentuck Elementary School, and now they're open and we had a great fall semester. And uh, it's a win-win for everybody, we think. So we're living in days where we're kind of right back there in the days of the early church facing things like they faced. And as we live in this hypersexual age filled with sin and idolatry, we want to unashamedly live out our faith and lovingly share that faith with lost sinners. But as we do, we can expect some major disturbances uh, 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 because of the way, you know, it's, uh, it's happened not only to churches and Christian schools and colleges in interacting with officials and things. Uh, you know, we, we live in a day where, unfortunately, um, the act of uh, homosexuality, which the Bible describes as sinful, and the Bible's right about that, and now transgender things, uh, the, the acceptance of such things is being pushed to uh, a civil rights issue and being put on par with the, uh, you know, um, racial things. And one of the ways that, uh, one of the things required in this moment is for Christians to look back and say, you know, we did make a lot of mistakes during the civil rights era. And we were wrong because the Bible has plenty of great things to say about how everybody is created in the image and likeness of God. Everybody's got value. We're, we're all bleed red and red and yellow, black and white. Everyone's precious in his sight, you know. Um, I run into young people and they'll flat out tell you, maybe they can't articulate it like this, but they'll say, my grandparents were wrong about the civil rights stuff. They're probably wrong about the sexual stuff. And they may even be wrong about the Jesus stuff. And so I think we have to start with the humility to say, we have missed some things in the past, you know. But it's because we weren't being faithful to the Scriptures that we missed those things. Um, the same Scriptures tell us that sexuality is a precious gift for a husband and wife and everything else is sin. So it's not this that we're picking on or lashing out against homosexuals or whatever like that. You know, that issue, LGBT, uh, all that affects my own family. And, uh, and it's heartbreaking because you want people to experience what God has for them, you know. Um, so on the one hand, we're loving the sinner, hating the sin, and uh, reinforcing that. 
And as a pastor, many, many times over the years, somebody's come to me and says, you know, I've got some same-sex attraction, but I don't want to. And so counsel me, talk to me. And I have. And when this issue is viewed as a civil rights issue on par with the racial things, then what happens is that, you know, the law becomes that if you speak out against it or try to counsel somebody not to be that, all of a sudden you have committed a crime. And our legislature in Virginia did pass legislation like that during the COVID time. Uh, I don't know if it ever went as far as becoming law, but they passed a lot of things during those two years that were signed by the previous governor and stuff like that. Les Adams told me some of the ways they were going to try to roll some of that back. And of course, with a, a mixed deal up there in our state house, uh, some of it did and some of it didn't, you know. But whether it's the national level or the local level, we're in a day where when Christians just reinforce what the Bible says, they will increasingly be viewed as committing a hate crime. Uh, and something that could be charged. And preachers have been charged in Canada and in Europe with saying that uh, reinforcing what the Scripture says about human sexuality uh, and um, been arrested and put in jail and on trial for doing that. And so that's the day we're in. And so we can expect major disturbances along the way just for presenting the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So 10 considerations real quickly here for Christians living in the public square. I gave you verses so you can look this up later. But the first one is don't be surprised by opposition to your faith. In addition to Paul telling Timothy there will be persecution, Jesus said, hey, in the world you will have what? Trouble! <laughs> John 16, 33, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Please also understand it's never us versus them. It's us for them, trying to win them. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. It's about the demonic forces behind the way people think and act. And so, um, you know, you really appreciate um, great men of God in the past, like Jerry Falwell, developing a wonderful friendship with the pornographer uh, and even having him fly on the plane with him and stuff like that. You know, never did win him to Christ, but we tried to, tried to, you know. And he knew that uh, the man, in a very real sense, was not his enemy in an everlasting way. He, the, you know, the pornographer was just wrong and uh, not only deceived, but deceiving, you know, and a pawn of Satan and all that went on as he put that filth out there. Next, do be humble. You're a sinner saved by God's grace. That's, of course, in Ephesians 2 and 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul has the humility to say, I am the chief of sinners. Not I was, but I am. Present tense. Um, and that's where we need to be at. Not judging others and saying, oh, I'm better than them, you know, but saying, hey, but for the grace of God, I'll do the same thing. Have. <laughs> Don't want to anymore, but have, you know. And uh, so there's sinners under the wrath of God because they've not been converted. There's saints that struggle with sin, um, sinners saved by grace. That leads to the next one. We do want to deal with our own sin and idolatry. Matthew 7, Jesus said, hey, first deal with that log in your own eye before you go looking at specks in others. You know, plenty for us to deal with as, and be humble because of it. Do truly love people and have compassion for them. And I've given you some verses there. Do lovingly serve your fellow man. I love Mark 10, 45. Can anybody quote it? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? And to give His life a ransom for many. And uh, the other verse I gave you there was John 13, 14. Anybody know that one? If I then, I think that's, if I, I then your Lord and teacher 
have washed your feet. I've given you command that you should wash each other's feet. I butchered it, but that's, I think that's the one. It's either that or the new command to love one another as I have loved you. Second Peter 3, do be known for good deeds. So Peter says to those he's writing to, uh, don't get in trouble for doing bad things. You know, be known, get in trouble for doing the right thing. And we're in days where you'll get in trouble if you do the right thing. I've told a few of you this before, but when I was first a Christian and I'd go to church, the deacons and ushers would meet you there at the door and they take the little finger and stick it in your belly there and they say, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? Here, take this bullet and you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? And after a couple of weeks of that, I thought that was the Baptist greeting. After a couple of weeks of that, I said, well, well mister, I just read in, in the Bible, Jesus said, in the world you're going to have trouble, but take courage, I've overcome the world. So I'm not trying to stay out of trouble, mister. I'm trying to get in trouble for the right reasons now. And he said, huh, that's true. Yeah, that's good. So the next week I saw him, met him at the door there, same usher. And you know what he said? Staying out of trouble, aren't you? <laughs> but hey, you're going to get in trouble. Get in trouble for the right reasons. Do courageously share the gospel, Acts 4, 18 through 20. I believe that's uh, where um, say you can choose, uh, we, you know, we're, we've got to obey God rather than men. You tell us not to share. God told us to. We're going to go with God. Now, you want to share your gospel and testimony with gentleness and respect. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 say that. I've told you, I think, a little bit before about uh, a wonderful fella that, were, that was in the church back up in... Uh, uh, Waynesboro. He was in his 30s and he was a district manager for one of the coffee companies, uh, uh, the one out of Seattle, one of the ones out of Seattle. And um, so he had a real pleasant and godly disposition. And so he would go to the different stores that he was a district manager over and they would say, um, uh, they would say, uh, he, he would have some of the workers there say, something's different about you. What is it? And he said, you really want to know? Yeah, why are you so joyful in the midst of an un, unhappy world, you know? You really want to know? Yeah, yeah, I do. Do you want to know enough to take your break time and us talk during your official break time? Not during working hours, because we got a job to do here at the company, but we'll talk during break time. Yeah, okay, I can do that. Yeah, so they sat down for a cup of coffee on break time, and there he would share his testimony and plant the seeds of the gospel. And he would also sometimes do that just as a shift would end or something like that. You know, uh, he was not dumb. He wouldn't uh, meet with a, a, a lady, you know, by herself there. You know, it'd be one of the open mall type things or something like that. But I thought that was a great way to do it. And he did see some people uh, come to know Christ. Um, one of our fellows here in uh, working at uh, one of the rental cars here in Danville, you know, um, has started a Bible study in his home. You really want to know why I'm different? Yeah, I'm going to do a Bible study in the home. Come on over for that, you know. And several of his employees are, and it's a good thing. Uh, last one, honor everything you can without compromising your faith convictions. Honor everything you can without, uh, uh, without compromising your faith convictions. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to do this, but we do, you know. Uh, I've had to do this as a child with my parents. I've had to do this as a parent with my children. <laughs> you know, I've had to do this as a coach, coaching for the public schools, uh, soccer all those years and different things, as assistant and head coaches and stuff like that. Um, I have, uh, you know, I love John Maxwell's little book about 360-degree leadership. You know, you're not always the, the leader, you know. 
Sometimes you've got somebody over you, you got somebody under you, you got peers on this side of you and things like that. And, you know, um, you can honor your parents even when you can't um, obey everything they ask you to do. That's why he said, obey your parents in the Lord, right? When my dad wanted me to drink with him, I said, Dad, I don't drink, you know. Um, I love you, but not going to do it. And, hey, nobody at that, nobody will know where you work. I'll know, Dad, you know. Uh, I'll know, Dad, you know. And Jesus will know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, we Christians really, uh, as much as we've got major disagreements with various politicians and things like that, we still need to honor the positions they're in and pray for them. Uh, even as we take the, the rights we have in a democratic society to say, that should not be, that should not be, you know. Uh, and I'm afraid that sometimes we just, you know, the corporate way that we uh, register our objections, whether with our employers or government officials, is like the old man saying, get off my lawn! <laughs> There's a better way to do it. And I think that uh, we see some of that unfolding in Paul's interactions with others. Well, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.